I have a question. What is the longest amount of time that you've ever spent by yourself? Nobody else, no human contact, no texting, no Snapchatting, all alone. What, five minutes? Maybe a couple days? We learned from the last couple of years that we were made to be in community, that isolation over a long period of time is not good for our heart. It can lead to depression, it can lead to anxiety, it can lead to any number of mental struggles. Now, maybe a personal retreat without our phones all alone for like a weekend would be a good thing, but imagine being all by yourself in solitary confinement for a month. I'd probably start to go crazy. Or how about this? What is the longest amount of time that you've ever gone without eating food? I experienced this, uh, this strange psychological condition called hanger. And you should feel bad for my wife because it did not take very long into marriage for her to all uncover my psychological problem. Um, and, you know, I was doing some research on the internet, and believe it or not, a psychology professor at UNC did some legit research on what it means to be hangry. And here's what she found. Being hungry clearly does change our effect, our emotional state, but this evidence suggests that it does not automatically lead to being angry or more selfish. Interesting. So the selfishness and the anger that arises sometimes when I'm hungry, it's not a food problem, it's a Sam problem. That's unfortunate. Regardless, I think all of us would say that solitary confinement combined with not eating any food is probably not a good combination. It might leave us in a little bit of a vulnerable state. Now imagine being all by yourself and not eating anything for 40 days. Be vulnerable. Probably start going a little crazy, right? That's where we find Jesus in our text tonight. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. If you've been following along with us on our summer series, this is message number three. We've been following the geography of Jesus' life and ministry called The Great Adventure. We're following Jesus through the Holy Land. We started on a journey to Egypt when Jesus experienced life as a refugee during the first couple years of his life. And then we traveled to Nazareth and we learned about Jesus in his hometown and what it meant to grow up in Nazareth. And then he preached his one of his first sermons at his hometown synagogue, and the people loved his sermon so much that they tried to murder him, right? Can you imagine what that would be like? Well, tonight, we're traveling away from Nazareth, and we're going into the wilderness, and that's where we're going to find ourselves in Matthew 4, verse 1. Follow along with me. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. (laughs) I just love how obvious that is. Yeah, no duh, Matthew. After 40 days, of course, Jesus will be hungry. And he clarifies that it wasn't just 40 days and then he ate after the sun went down. No, he's very clear that Jesus didn't have anything to, drink, anything to eat for 40 days. And when you fast, you don't have any food. You have water, but you don't have any food. So Jesus had hydration but didn't eat for 40 days. But what do you think of when you hear the word wilderness? It takes me back to fourth grade. One of the best books I read in all of elementary school, Hatchet. Any Hatchet fans out there? Oh man, what a great book. Thank you, Brian. When I think of wilderness, I think of 
Canada and pine trees and lakes and bears and no people for like thousands of miles. Someday I'll, I'll share the book Hatchet with Matthias and we'll read it before he goes to bed. That might not be a good idea. Maybe not good bedtime reading, but maybe someday. Now, we've got to take our like Northwoods version of wilderness and throw it out the window because that's not at all the wilderness that Jesus would have experienced in Israel. The traditional site of the Mount of Temptation is five kilometers northwest of the city of Jericho, basically straight east of Jerusalem. It was kind of in the Dead Sea region. Uh, the, the mountain is called Jebel Kurantul, and it, it rises only 450 feet above uh, sea level, which... I mean, if you do the math, that's like half the size of a mountain. But Alex, maybe you can put the picture up. It certainly looks taller than that. That's because Jericho, the city that's closest to Jebel Kurantul, is 800 feet below sea level. So as you descend farther down, it gets warmer and warmer. And you see a little bit of green here. That's just because of irrigation agriculture. This is a dry, rocky part of Israel. And not very far away, about 15 kilometers away from this mountain, is the Dead Sea. Maybe you can show a picture of that. It's a, a beautiful region. It's dry. I don't know if you know anything about the Dead Sea. It's one of the saltiest bodies of water on the planet. It's 10 times saltier than the ocean. That if you try to swim in the Dead Sea, you don't swim, you float. It's one of the strangest sensations that you will ever feel. It's wild. Um, but the Dead Sea and the area around it is remarkably dry. It's 14 hundred feet below sea level, and it gets all the way to a thousand feet deep. But this region, the Dead Sea, Qumran, the Mount of Temptation, it's very dry. It would more resemble a desert. But if you visited the Mount of Temptation today, you could actually ride a cable car up to a monastery that is right in the side of the mountain. That'd be really cool. Monks actually are working and learning and serving there uh, today, it's been a Greek Orthodox monastery since 1874, but many believe that these are, are the caves where Jesus was tempted. But imagine living in a, a region like this, in the mountains, in the desert, in the wilderness, in the dry, for 40 days, no contact with people and no food. But did you notice the language in verse 1? It was remarkably precise. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We have to understand that the, the Father is not the one doing the tempting. As James says, God can't be tempted by evil, nor can he tempt anyone. Yet the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness in order that he might be tempted by the devil. Yes, Satan works to oppose the work of God in the world, but he doesn't operate without boundaries. He does not act independently of God. He has a leash. Yes, it's a long leash, but Satan is not an enemy that is at equal standing or equal power with God. He can only do what God permits, and we see that clearly in the first verse. But after 40 days of fasting, when Jesus is low, when he's most vulnerable, that's when Satan arrives for Jesus' greatest test to date. Look at verse 3. And the tempter, another name for Satan, came and said to him, who's Jesus, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, Jesus, answered, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Can you just imagine how tempting it would have been to turn those stones into bread? I mean, they're, they're probably the same stones that Jesus had been staring at for the last 40 days. If that's me, I probably would have already hallucinated five times that the stones were actually bread and I would have chipped a tooth trying to bite into it, right? But that's not what happened. Jesus refutes Satan with scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Now, if you read the footnotes in your study Bible, you probably would notice that Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, not once, but three times. Every scripture he quotes in this text is from the book of Deuteronomy, which strengthens the typology. We talked about typology a couple weeks ago between Israel and Jesus. Remember, Israel, when they were leaving Egypt, and coming to the promised land, because of their disobedience, because of their disbelief, they wandered in the desert, in the wilderness, for 40 years. Sound familiar? Jesus was in the wilderness, in the desert, for 40 days. But where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. He conquered. He resists the temptation of the enemy. But then why quote from the book of Deuteronomy? Well, because the book of Deuteronomy was the renewal of the covenant. It was given to the people of Israel after their 40 years of wandering in the desert. Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy after his 40 days in the wilderness, and he resists the temptation of the enemy. Kind of a cool uh, little facet of our text. But we definitely see a thematic connection between the first temptation and the second. Look at verse 5. The devil took him to a holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written. He'll command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And again, Jesus said to him, Again, it's written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You can picture it in the second stage of the temptation. Satan takes Jesus to the top of the temple and tells him just to take a leap of faith. The angels are going to catch you. But did you catch the if? He said, if you're the son of God. Satan challenges Jesus' deity. He challenges his divinity and says, you've got to prove yourself. You've got to demonstrate that you're actually God. Because could Jesus have turned the stones into bread? Yeah. Could he have jumped off the temple, and had one of the angels catch him? Certainly. He was God. He is God. But Jesus helps us understand something very important, that we cannot put God to the test. We can't put God in a position where we order him around. Instead, we submit to his will and his plan. We can't deliberately put ourselves, our lives, or the life of somebody else in danger as a way to test God, as a way to put out a fleece like Gideon did. Maybe to make this idea come to life, maybe a sad but close to home example might help. Reminds me of the tragic case of Karen Newman, 2009, an 11-year-old girl from down the road in Weston who passed away from juvenile diabetes. What happened was her parents observed her health declining over time. But they believed that God alone had the power to heal, and they refused to take her to a doctor. They refused modern medicine. Her health got worse and worse and worse. And a relative from California observed what was happening, heard what was happening over the phone. So they called 911. They got an ambulance to the house. They picked her up. They took her to the hospital, but it was too late. She didn't make it. It was a headline that made national news. You can read about it in the New York Times from Weston. 
But why does that not sit well in our stomach? Why does that make us uncomfortable? I mean, mom and dad had great faith. They believed that God could heal. Why does that not sit well? Well, for at least two reasons. First, they put God in a box. They demanded that God heal or else. They were ordering God around. But then second, they had a pretty strong distinction between the healing power of God and modern medicine, where I would say that those two things are often intertwined. I think it would have been wise for mom and dad to pray, Father, heal our daughter while driving her to the emergency room. Because you and I have probably seen God over and over again answer prayer for healing through the ability of our medical professionals in our area. But the text, this example, reminds us that we can't put God in a box. We can't put God to the test. We can't put God in a position where we're ordering him around. We submit to his will, not the other way around. But you might have realized in the text, what does Satan do? Satan says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. He quotes from the book of Psalms. Satan quotes Psalm 91 to try to get Jesus to give in to sin. Now, certainly he quotes the verse out of context. When the psalmist is talking about accidentally stumbling, he interprets it as deliberately jumping off a a cliff to force God to save you. So he takes it out of context. But it's maybe a powerful reminder that if Jesus was tempted with the Bible, if Satan tried to get Jesus to give in to sin with Scripture, do you think that Satan could try to get us to give in to sin with the same tactic? I think he could. I think he does. Just because someone quotes the Bible does not mean it's being quoted correctly. So maybe three words for us to remember as we think about how to interpret the Bible. Context, context, and context. We've got to understand the context. We have to understand the logical context. Logical context is simple. What comes before and what comes after a verse We never want to read just an isolated verse. We want to understand the broader context to make sure we're interpreting it correctly. Or how about the historical context? We want to understand uh, what that verse meant to the original audience. Or how about the big picture context? We want to understand what that verse means in God's big picture of Scripture, his redemptive plan. We have to understand the context. I really like what Warren Wearsby has to say about this. He says, we can prove almost anything by the Bible if we isolate texts from the context and turn them into pretexts. Got to be careful, make sure we're understanding the context as we think about God's word. But Jesus, again, responds to Satan's temptation with the book of Deuteronomy, don't put God to the test. But the third temptation that Jesus faces is probably the most challenging of all. Look at verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All of these I'll give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. The devil had left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Interesting. Some of us might ask, How could Satan offer Jesus the kingdoms of the world that Jesus has created? Doesn't make sense. Here's what was going on. Satan was offering a way for Jesus to bypass the cross. Saying, Jesus, do you want the glory? Do you want the fame? Do you want the praise and the recognition? All you have to do is be my number two. 
bow down and worship me. I'll give you everything. You can have the glory and the fame without having to go through the suffering, without having to go through Calvary. He gives them a way to bypass the cross because Jesus has an understanding of what's to come. But Jesus withstands the temptation and says, Satan, be gone. And Satan flees from him, again, as he quotes from Scripture. Certainly wasn't the first time that Jesus defeated Satan and certainly wasn't the last. But when we look at a text like this, some of you uh, theology nerds are going to ask the following question, so I'll ask it for you. Do you think Jesus could have sinned? Well, some of you immediately went, no, he's fully God. There's no way that Jesus could have sinned because God can't be tempted by evil, nor can he tempt anyone. And then the other half of you think, but Jesus is fully man. Of course, if he was fully man, he could have sinned. How do we answer that? Well, before I try to answer that question, let me uh, lay an even more important foundation, a theological major that there's, there's no way for us to negotiate. Jesus did not sin. End of story. He was perfect in thought and attitude and action and obeying every aspect of God's law, thus qualifying him to be the just substitute for our sin. Jesus did not sin. He is perfect. But could Jesus have sinned? It's a hypothetical Here's my very highly theological answer to that question. I don't know. <laughs> but Satan seemed to think that Jesus could have sinned. Otherwise, Satan wouldn't have tempted him. And Satan has been around longer than me. So I'll punt to that. I don't know. That's my best answer for that. But as we think about the significance of this text, as we think about Jesus as a model for you and I withstanding temptation, I think one of the verses that really helps us understand is from the book of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. It says this, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Did you catch the power of that verse? That Jesus has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Every way, in every respect. Do you understand the implication of that verse? That Jesus was tempted to take a little bit of money out of that money bag? That Jesus was tempted to give in to peer pressure instead of standing his ground? That Jesus likely was tempted to lust after someone of the opposite sex and someone of the same sex? that Jesus was tempted to give in to pride, that Jesus was tempted to give in to worry, that Jesus was tempted to, to seek his own glory and his own gratification using miracles to serve himself, that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Doesn't that change our perspective just a little bit? We could never say to Jesus, Jesus, you don't understand. Jesus, you don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like to face an intense battle from the enemy. We can't say that. Because he knows. He knows our weakness. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to face spiritual attack. Even better than we do. <laughs> because Jesus never gave in. He always resisted all the way through the temptation. You and I will often come to a point where we don't keep resisting. That never happened to Jesus. He resisted all the way through. We have a sympathetic savior, a high priest who knows what it's like to be tempted so that when we're facing temptation, when we're facing spiritual attack, we can go to Jesus because he understands. When we consider what it looks like to model 
after Jesus and resist temptation, it's important for, for us to understand the difference between temptation and sin. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Temptation is not sin. But it's also important for us to understand the difference between temptation and sinful desire. I think James 1 helps us make that distinction in verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. He himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Again, the author of James makes the same distinction, that sinful desire is not the same as sin. Desire brings forth sin. Desire does not equal sin. There's a distinction. But we also have to understand the difference between temptation coming from outside of us and sinful desire coming from inside of us. Maybe an example will help. Last week, I was texting our friend Fritz, who's been uh, doing a lot of fishing lately. He spent some time up, up north at a family cabin during the summer. Um, and he and his wife love to go musky hunting or musky fishing, as some would say. They love musky fishing. And I, I asked him, Fritz, I haven't seen a picture all summer of a muskie. I need to see a picture. And he replied pretty quickly and said, well, honestly, Sam, I would like to see a picture of a muskie too. They've caught one all summer off the dock. And it must not have been very impressive because they didn't send me a picture. And that's unusual for them. I mean, they catch, catch dozens usually of muskies. And he said, I don't know what's going on. They're just not hungry this year. I mean, he's using the same bait. I don't know if he's using a Meps muskie killer, using a bucktail, whatever. He's still using the same bait, but something inside those muskies are not taking the bait. They're not hungry. Think of what that means for temptation with the enemy. That Satan can lure the bait right in front of your mouth, but he can't make you take a bite. The desire for sin comes from here, but the temptation comes from here. Now, some of us, me included, often like to blame other people or our, our circumstances, maybe even Satan when we give in to sin. Think, man, if, if, if I'd gotten sleep last night, I wouldn't have snapped at her. Or God, if you would allow me to be married, my struggle with lust would be gone. God, if you just take these friends out of my life, then I wouldn't be struggling with this anymore. Or if they paid me more, then I, I wouldn't take that cut out of the drawer. Or it's Satan's fault. I mean, that temptation was so strong, it was relentless. I, I just had to give in. It's a lot easier to blame somebody else, isn't it? But James says that the desire comes from here. And it's a lot scarier for us to look in the mirror and do heart surgery, addressing the sinful desires and the tendencies that come from our heart. Because that's where we have to start. Satan might tempt us. He might lure the bait in front of our mouth. He can't get us to take a bite. That desire comes from here. We've got to look inside before we look outside. And some of us might have that problem where we over-attribute power to Satan. We give him too much credit when we give in to sin and we don't look in the mirror enough. But I would guess that there's a number of us that actually have the opposite problem that we fail to realize that we're at war that there's a spiritual battle raging around us. It reminds me of December 7th, 1941. You've probably heard the day. It's one of the most fateful days in American history, but it started off like any other day in Honolulu, Hawaii. Beautiful, sunny day. 
but the U.S. Navy had been lulled to sleep. And for some reason, they decided to line up the battleships in Pearl Harbor in a line. It looked pretty, but it left them as sitting ducks. The Navy didn't realize that the Japanese had advanced their torpedo technology, and they were able to fly at 25 feet below the surface, making the entire harbor fair game. Days before, the president of the United States had received a warning that an attack was imminent, and they ignored it. Nearly the entire Pacific fleet, 100 ships, were stationed in Pearl Harbor. And then at 7 a.m., two young privates were looking at the radar. They see this giant blip on the radar screen, and they go and talk to their supervisors immediately and say, we've never seen anything like this. What is this? And the supervisors take a look and say, ah, it's just some of our boats coming in off of exercise. Don't worry about it. 48 minutes later, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. 2,400 Americans lost their life. 180 aircraft were destroyed. All eight battleships were damaged, four sunk to the bottom, including one that is still at the bottom of the harbor today. One of the most fateful days in American history. But just imagine the damage, the loss of life that could have been prevented if the Navy would not have been lulled to sleep. You see where I'm going. Because I wonder how many of us do the same thing in our spiritual life. That we just forget we're at war. We forget that we're fighting a battle against a spiritual enemy who's been around a lot longer than we have. He's created as an angel of light, but sometime after the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, he desired to be like God, wanted to be the same as God. He gave into the sin of pride and wanted God's glory. And as a punishment, God kicks him out of heaven along with a third of the angels that sided with him and has been working since then to subvert the work of God in the world. He goes by many different names throughout scripture, the accuser of the brethren, the adversary, Satan, the devil, could go on and on. But he and his demons are working to subvert God's plan and his glory in the world. And you and I could come up with, I don't know, hundreds of different battle tactics that Satan might employ. And if you go on our Mexico trip, for example, or maybe you just got back from London or the DR, you maybe observed some different battle tactics that the enemy would use. If you talk to some of our students in Mexico who are in the tribes up in the mountains, they see some different things that we don't see here. It seems like Satan's battle tactics change a little bit across cultures and across time. But what would we say is maybe one of his top battle tactics in American Christianity today? We could come up with a lot. Here's one. Hypnotism. I'm convinced that he's lulled the church to sleep. A love of sports, an addiction to comfort, an obsession with pleasure, the need to make as much money as possible, the desire to be in control, the fear of anything hard. He's distracted us. He's given us iPhones with social media that we can scroll for hours a day. And he's lulled us to sleep. And I'm afraid that when the attack comes, we're not going to be ready. Or even worse, when the attack comes, we're going to be so comatose that we don't even realize it. So it's time for us to have a little bit of a family talk about fighting a spiritual battle. We've got to be prepared. We've got to be ready. We've got to know how to fight against our spiritual enemy. When I was a kid growing up on the east side of Wausau, 
uh, in the summer months, one of our favorite pastimes would be having water gun fights with the neighbors. It was a blast. We had so much fun staying cool in the backyard. And it was fun until the neighbor boy got a super soaker. Anybody remember those? You probably haven't heard about a super soaker for like 15 years, right? My little three-inch water pistol couldn't keep up. And I just got destroyed. And I never wanted to spend money on a super soaker. I'm afraid that some of us are showing up to battle with a three-inch water pistol and our enemy is showing up with the super soaker. It might be time for us to enhance some of the tools that are in our toolbox. So five principles tonight for a spiritual battle boot camp. I'm sure we could list more. Some of you have been waiting for this all night. You can finally write something on your handout. Here's the first, and this is the harshest, but we'll start there and we'll get easier from there. Don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. Let me explain. If you're battling against lust, why do you have unbridled internet access on your phone? Don't be stupid. If you're struggling with gambling, then why are you playing free poker on the internet? Don't be stupid. If you and your significant other or your fiance are facing a consistent temptation to cross boundaries in your relationship, then why are you spending the night at each other's apartment? Don't be stupid. If you're struggling with language, then why are you watching that show on Netflix that has profanity in every other sentence? Don't be stupid. If you're being tempted to abuse substances, then why are you hanging out with that friend group that is high more often than they're not? Don't be stupid. It sounds obvious, but it's really easy for us to justify behavior and think something like, ah, you know, if she spends the night in my apartment, then we're going to get more time together and nothing's going to happen. It's not a big deal. Or, yeah, that friend group, yeah, but I want to share Jesus with them, so I'm going to keep hanging out with them, even though they pull you into sin every time that you hang out with them. Or, I really need Safari on my phone. You don't understand, Sam. I, I can't have someone delete that for me. Friends, please don't justify stupidity. Some of you are giving Satan open season in your life, and you're wondering why you can't overcome certain sin struggles. Don't be lulled to sleep. Okay, I said that was the harshest one. It'll get kinder from here. Number two, pray out loud. Pray out loud. We see through a number of these, not all, but a number of them, that Jesus modeled how to fight temptation for us in our text. He faced temptation, at least partially, so that we could see also how to fight against temptation. I have a question. Can God read your thoughts? Does God know what you're thinking right now? Yes, he does. Can Satan read your thoughts? Does he know what you're thinking right now? I don't think so. He's not omniscient. He's a pretty good guesser. He probably has a good guess at what you're thinking, but he doesn't know. So we can pray to God in our mind, but when we fight a spiritual battle, we probably are going to need to open our mouth. And do you notice that's exactly what Jesus did when he was fighting against the enemy? He wasn't thinking things. He was speaking out loud. Think of the book of Acts, for example, when uh, the apostles were healing people, when they were casting demons out of people. They used that phrase, rise up and walk in Jesus' name. Have you heard that before? That's how we finish prayer often, isn't it? We pray in Jesus' name and then we say, Amen. Is that just a magic phrase? Is it like a magic spell we just cast on things? No, it's not. 
It's a picture of where our power comes from. It's a picture of where our authority comes from. That when I pray or when we fight against the enemy, that I have no power to boss Satan around. I don't. But I know somebody that does. Jesus does. And when we pray, we're appealing to Jesus' power, his authority, as we fight a spiritual battle. So just think about what that would look like to pray out loud. Maybe you're facing the temptation to give in to fear over a situation at your job. And you could pray out loud something like this, Father, give me the strength to resist this temptation in Jesus' name. Because you've given me a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Or maybe you're facing the temptation to give in to some sort of sexual sin. And Satan is just hanging that fishing lure right in front of your face. You could pray out loud something like this. Father, give me the strength to resist this temptation in Jesus' name. Because this is your will for me, that I abstain, that I run away from sexual immorality. Praying out loud to a number of us, maybe it feels strange. Maybe it feels a little awkward. Maybe it feels forced. Maybe it would mean taking a trip away from your desk and going on a a quick walk in the afternoon or running to the bathroom quick in the middle of the day. But we've got to do whatever we can when we face that temptation to pray out loud. And maybe you caught what I did in two of those prayers. I used a couple different scripture passages, one from 2 Timothy 1 and another from 1 Thessalonians 4. That's our third principle. In addition to praying out loud, we've got to speak scripture. We've got to speak scripture. That is exactly what Jesus did. Three times he said, it is written. Three times he quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. When you look at Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, which is the passage all about the armor of God, there is one offensive weapon in the armor of God. The rest are defensive. One offensive weapon is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The only way for us to fight back, our super, so- our super soaker is scripture. Wow, that was a tongue twister. I was not expecting that. That's what the psalmist writes in Psalm 119, verse one. He says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So when you're facing temptation, beyond just uh, going to the back of the Bible and saying, okay, what, what can I find about gossip? We've got to have a verse here, ready to go so that we can speak scripture and fight against the enemy. That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus did not pull out his iPhone on his version Bible app and search uh, verses about testing God. No, he had the Bible memorized. It probably helped that he wrote it, but that's beside the point. Think of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. One of the best verses in all of scripture about fighting temptation. I memorized it as a kid in the NIV and I've read it recently in the ESV. So we're gonna call this the new English standard version, right? No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But with each temptation, he'll provide a way for you to stand up under it. It's an amazing verse that literally applies to every single temptation that you or I might face. So I have a challenge. Two weeks, let's memorize that verse. Two weeks from tonight, that's your homework. When we come back on July 11th to have 1 Corinthians 10, 13 memorized. And you know, me, maybe some of our greeters, there might be a quiz. When you're walking in the door next Monday night in two weeks, I say, hey, how's your week? How's your fourth? Next question is going to be, what's 1 Corinthians 10, 13? I'm not going to ask you if you memorized it. I'm going to ask you to recite it. And it's going to be ready to go. That's how important it is to have a verse like this memorized. 
it's got to be there. It's got to be ready to go. I hope that you'll commit to memorizing that. R1 Wake Up Kids are fourth and fifth graders. This is one of the verses that they memorize, and they memorize a verse like this every single week. If fourth and fifth graders can do this every week, our young adults can do one verse in two weeks, I believe. Maybe you're ready for Spiritual Warfare 201. Maybe you're ready for the next step. Maybe you have that verse memorized already. Here's the next step, memorizing Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18. It's the passage about the armor of God, and it's an incredible text. For me, it's been a passage for, I don't know, maybe the last 15 years of my life that I have tried to pray through every day. Sure, there's days that I've forgotten. But for me, it's a a way to think through, visually put on the armor, but then remind myself that I'm about to go to battle. I don't get to take a nap spiritually, that we're fighting a war. We have to speak scripture. And maybe that means going on Google later tonight and, or maybe using a concordance or a Bible app and just finding some verses that are specific to your sin struggle and memorizing a verse or two so that you're ready to go so that when that temptation comes that you can speak scripture out loud. Friends, we have to have the Bible memorized. Take some time to devote God's word to your heart this week. Number four, don't be a lone wolf. Don't be a lone wolf. God created us for community. He created us to do life together. He did not create you to do battle alone. And when some of you think of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and you think, I don't feel like I can withstand temptation. I feel like God's giving me temptations that I can't withstand. You have to realize one of the tools that God has given us to withstand, to come out from under a temptation is one another. That if you're trying to fight against sin all by yourself in isolation, there's a chance a good chance you're not going to succeed. We need a brother, we need a sister in our life that can ask us the hard questions, that knows us, that there's no question that's off limits and ask anything. And it's got to be somebody besides your spouse or significant other, somebody the same gender that can ask anything, that can ask you the tough questions, that can hold you accountable, that person that you can call at 11 o'clock at night because you're facing temptation and you don't know what to do. We need that person in our life. It's important for us to lean in to one another. For me, it's been, um, it's been really cool to see that when I send that text to a brother, it says, pray for me right now, I'm feeling tempted over this area or that area. It's amazing, um, sometimes that temptation just disappears. I think it's for two reasons. First, I know that I have a brother that's praying with me and is now in the battle with me. I'm not fighting alone anymore. But second, I know that I'm going to get a text the next day that says, hey, how did the rest of your day go? And it adds a whole other layer of accountability. None of us are beyond sending that text. All of us need to demonstrate the humility to say, man, I need somebody else in the fight with me right now. And if you've never sent that text before in the midst of temptation, I challenge you to do that this week and see how God can use one another uh, to help withstand that temptation. So that's number four. Here's number five. Rely on the Spirit. It's kind of wild that Jesus used the same tools available to us today when he was in the desert. He relied on the same Spirit. The Spirit who led him into the wilderness gave him the strength to withstand the temptation. He spoke Scripture, the same Scripture that you and I have available to us. He spoke out loud. He used the same tools. 
But this last point uncovers the tension, the mysterious dance of the Christian life. Resisting temptation means that we admit that we don't have the power on our own to win. Resisting temptation means that we surrender, that we understand that our power comes from the Spirit. It doesn't come from us. Some of you have been white-knuckling it, trying to withstand temptation all by yourself. And maybe today is the day to surrender and say, I'm giving up. I'm going to rely on the Spirit. It doesn't mean that we're passive. It doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility. But it means understanding that we can't win this battle if it's not for God's power working through us. It's ironic that spiritual victory actually begins with surrender. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for another text tonight to give us a glimpse into the humanity of Jesus. Many of us, maybe all of us, couldn't imagine being alone while fasting for 40 days. But Jesus faced the toughest test so that we might understand that regardless of the temptation that might come our way through the same spirit, we can overcome that you won't let us be tempted beyond what we can bear, but you'll always provide a way for us to stand up under it. And sometimes that path is not easy. Sometimes it takes some work. Sometimes it takes some humility to send that text or make that phone call or to remove ourselves from a situation. But Father, give us diligence to fight well and to be people that rely on your spirit, who rely on the sword of the spirit, the word of God, to fight spiritual battles. Father, we want to win, but we want to win through your power. So may our young adult family be a family that is characterized by consistent spiritual victory and not giving battles over to the enemy, not being lulled to sleep by the distractions of our culture, but understanding that we're at war, that we're at a war for the gospel and that there are souls every day that are dying without Christ. Father, give us a glimpse of what it looks like to fight battle well. And for those that are here tonight that are discouraged, that have maybe not been succeeding in this area of your life, in the area of their life, may you comfort them. May you give them the courage to talk to somebody this week, to let somebody else into that struggle, and to begin fighting well. Father, as we take some time to dialogue in our small groups tonight, uh, we ask that you might guide our time.